Everybody doing good? You ready to dig in? Okay. Let's dig in. Mark uh, chapter 10. Meet me there. Mark chapter 10. Um, As you are finding uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, I want to uh, share with you a story. Is it okay if I tell you a story? Okay. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, I went out to visit uh, some friends in Utah, uh, some old army buddies, Uh, which reminds me, if you, like we just celebrated Veterans Day uh, on on the 11th. Um, If you're in here and you are a veteran, um, I want to say thank you. Uh, Riverview wants to say uh, thank you. I'm not going to make you stand up um, because you don't want to do that. Uh, you didn't uh, sign up for the military, any branch of it, to be recognized or honored. You signed up out of a sense of duty and call, um, not only for our country, but to be a sacrificial offering um, of your life, uh, just as a representation of Jesus was for ours. Uh, so thank you, um, veterans uh, who are in the room right now. And uh, would you please um, thank those veterans who are in here? It is a tall task that you men and women uh, were called to, and uh, we celebrate you and we honor you. You are heroes, um, not only in our country, but you're, uh, when you walk in with the faith, you're also heroes of the faith. And so I'm super grateful uh, for you. Um, so back into the story, um, we were heading to Utah uh, to visit one of my, uh, one of my best friends. Um, just a great guy, and so we were kind of popping in on him, and uh, we were finishing up after breakfast uh, one morning, and he started to clear the dishes and uh, went to the kitchen and went to uh, the dishwasher, and he started to put uh, pans inside the dishwasher. Um, Anybody put pans inside the dishwasher? Uh, A a few people? I said, uh, dude, like, you can't put pans inside the dishwasher. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, sure you can. And I said, no, you can't. I said, it doesn't work. He said, dude, if it fits, it ships, okay? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean if it fits, it ships? He said, if I can fit that thing in here, it's getting washed. And I, and I said, okay, I don't know if it works, but we'll, we'll try it. And so fast forward, I went home um, later that week, and we were finishing up after breakfast, and I decided that I would be helpful and clean up. And uh, so uh, we had some pans, and so I put everything in the dishwasher, and I put the pans inside the dishwasher. And my wife, she looked at me um, with loving eyes, and uh, she said, what are you doing? You can't put pans in the dishwasher. I said, that's what I thought too. Um, But apparently, if it fits, it ships. And she says, what on earth are you talking about? Um, I said, uh, if we can fit these babies in here, we're going to wash them. And she said, I don't think it's going to work. I said, you just watch. And so uh, we put the pans in there. We washed the pans. And I'm going to tell you how this worked. Um, I was sitting in my office later that morning, and I I get a ping on my phone. I got a message from from Ashley. And I love getting messages from my wife. Um, Just always love to read them. Um, But she sent me along a picture. um, And I want to show you the picture there. Um, I don't know if you can see that or not. But that pan looks just like it did when I put it in the dishwasher after coming out of the dishwasher. And she said, if it fits, it doesn't ship in this house. Okay, and so that's how it worked. Um, But I want to say um, it this way so we can slide into what we're talking about this morning. Um, Just because it looks clean on the outside doesn't mean that it's clean on the inside. Can I say that again? Just because something looks clean on the outside doesn't mean that it's going to be clean on the inside. 
Um, there are people and there are things that get polished up real nice on the outside. But when you start to crack back the layers and you look on the inside, man, it is nothing but filth and dirt. Um, and I don't think we have to shake that tree very hard to see what falls out of it, do you? Uh, I, I think we understand when we say that there is a cup that is clean on the outside, um, it can still be dirty on the inside. And we know exactly what it means. We know the implications of that. We already feel it in our gut. When we start talking about something like that, we feel exposed. We feel challenged. We feel stepped on. Um, but we know the fruit that comes out of a tree like that. Um, we can have it all put together. Um, we can have it all nice and clean on the outside. But if the inside is falling apart, um, it, it, it's no good for anything. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Um, because this is a message I, I think the Lord birthed in me um, this week and has birthed in me throughout my life and walk with him. Um, and I'm guessing that the, I'm in a body of believers who have felt some of this in your own life and felt some exposure. Um, I, I think when we start talking about something like this, um, that in our culture, that we have lived with this facade uh, of everything is great. Everything is fine. And we've talked about it like a couple years ago. And we threw out the F word, right? We said everything is fine. And uh, we threw it out a, a few months ago. And we talked about how we live in this, this facade of fine. And we act like everything's together. And we, uh, we put a filter on everything. And so things look nice. Um, we walk behind a wall that we have built up so that nobody can see in to see what's going on. Um, there are things going on in our life, but yet we paint a smile on our face um, amongst people. We paint a smile on our face amongst groups. And everything looks fine on the outside, but when you start to pull back the layers, things aren't fine. And I think when we look across our uh, American culture, and even when we look inside the church culture, we can understand that this facade has led us to a place where we're really not fine, but we act like we are. And the reason why we sometimes feel the pressure and the stress is because we've acted like it's okay all the time. Now, I can, I can paint a bucket of bolts and throw it on four wheels, and I can call it a Ferrari. But as soon as you press the gas, you're going to know that there's something different about what you just painted. It may look like a Ferrari, it may say Ferrari on the outside of it, but as soon as you put pressure inside the engine or that thing that you built, it, it's, it's, sure to, it, it's sure to fall apart. It, it's going to show the difference, it's going to show the cracks. And I think we know this internally, right? As human beings who are walking in a culture, I think we, we know this in, in, internally, but yet we keep falling for it. Uh, we, we know that the mom on Instagram, she didn't, uh, it doesn't always look like that. That picture that she posted, it wasn't like, hey, let me take a, a quick snapshot. It took two hours to get that picture. Like she had to set the table just right. She had to put the flowers and put the plate and the steak and husband on the other side and a fire pit going on in the background. It took two hours to get that picture. And we know that internally, but then we say, man, my life needs to look like hers. So my life needs to, to look like his. And we begin to play this comparison game on, on, uh, online. We know, guys, we know that the, the dude on the commercial with the belly band, he didn't start off looking like that and he didn't end up looking like that. But yet we say, I need to do everything that he did or I need to do everything that I need to look like that. But we keep going for it. And the outside isn't always telling the truth of what's going on on, on the inside. And in our culture and every culture and every generation that's going on before us, there's this prevailing question that has been lingering over the society. 
and has been in the mind of most individuals. And the question goes something like this. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do to be a part? What do I have to do to fit in? What do I have to do to have some feeling of meaning and some feeling of significance? What do I have to do to be able to hang out in your group? What do I need to do to fill in the, the blank? And whatever it is that we feel like we need to do, we begin to morph and we begin to shift and we begin to add people in and to cut people out and to add things in to cut things out. We morph to fit whatever it is that we think that we have to do to fit certain groups. And that happens in the church too. And the question that we begin to ask in the church is the same, but we've, for years, depending on what our tradition is that we've grown up with, we've answered that question in all kinds of different ways. For some of us, depending on the tradition that we have when we grew up, we answer, well, what do I have to do even to have eternal life? We've said, well, we just maybe need to do a few more penances. Maybe we need to say a few more Hail Marys. Maybe we need to make more money. Maybe we need to give more money. Do a few more good deeds. All the way down to some extreme measures of spiritual abuse that we've seen in every tradition that has found itself in the headlines of late and throughout history. And, and sometimes, in trying to figure out how to get in, we spend a ton of work on the outside, and everything looks clean on the outside. But everything inside might be a, a train wreck, if we're being honest. And while we're printing up the outside of the Ferrari, and it's looking real good, the wheels are coming off. And the engine inside just can't handle the pressure that it's been given and I think you guys know what I mean. And so what I want to do is I want to look in Mark chapter 10 here, starting in verse 17. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to find a little bit of wisdom of how we can live with actual significance in our life, an actual uh, meaning in our life. And so if you have Mark 10 now, uh, starting in verse 17, uh, here's what Mark says. And he was setting out on his journey, or... And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and, and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's nobody who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who will be first will be the last and the last first 
Would you pray with me? Father, that's your word. So we pray right now that your word would not return void, that your word would go out and your spirit would move amongst us. And uh, what you have for us this morning, that we would be ready to hear and when we would be ready to apply, that we would respond to your word, that the, the seed of your word would be planted in our hearts and it would grow down deep inside of us so that we might be trees bearing fruit, not only here, but where you call us and where you send us. So Lord, that's your word. Would you stick it into our minds this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, you have what I think that we could call the perfect man, okay? He's coming and he's kneeling down before Jesus. And he sees Jesus and, and, and has what I believe is an honest question. I don't think he's trying to pull anything on Jesus. There are some people who come to Jesus and they're trying to trick him. I don't think he's got anything up his sleeve here. I think he's really coming to Jesus and he's saying, hey, um, with this honest question, and he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And this is the question, right? This is the question that we all have. It's the question of significance. It's the question of meaning. It's the question of belonging. What do I need to do to be a part of something that's going to last not only from here to tomorrow, but it's going to last into eternity? What do I need to do? And this is the honest question. This is Jesus, tell me. Tell me, I'll do it. What do I need to do? Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. As this man approaches Jesus, he is kneeling down before him. This is a humble position. This is a posture of humility. It's a posture of worship that we see all throughout Scripture. But not only is he kneeling down before him, but if you look in verse 22, you see that this is a very wealthy man. Um, He's not just kneeling, this is not just some, some bum off the street. This is a wealthy man right now who is kneeling down before Jesus. And so he's got two things going for him in this culture. Not only would we see this in our culture today, but we would see this in the Jewish culture as well. Two things are going for him. His posture is telling people outside that are looking in that he is humble before God and he appears to be financially blessed by God. These are two markers in the Jewish society that would say, this guy is doing it. This guy has done things right. He and God, they must be tight together like nothing that we've ever seen before. And on top of that, He's asking the right questions. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Now, from the outside to you and me and to the Jewish community, this guy's perfect. He looks great. He's probably got a great family. He's probably got pictures on the wall of him and his wife and his kids and probably on his Instagram and he got everything just right and fireplace going in the background. He's probably coming from, from great stock here. And from the outside, this is the one that we would say, man, this guy is on track. He's got it. But because he's got what everybody's spending their entire life working on, we would say there's something significant. In this generation, and generations after us, and generations after that, and generations after that, the mark of true success has always been, where's the money? Do I have enough? Do I want more? And it's not going to end in this culture. It's going to go to the next culture. It's going to go to the next generation as well. But in every generation, this money has been the true level of success. And this man right now who's knelt down before Jesus, he has what everybody else would say, this is success. But you can be perfect on the outside. You can have everything that this world says is is worthy, and you could still have a pretty jacked up heart. Would you agree with me? Um, let me? Let me take you out of Mark for a quick second. And you can follow me along if you want to, but I'm just going to kind of tell a story out of 1 Samuel. 
If you want to write this down, you can follow along in the story when you get home. Um, we'll start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we'll dive into chapter 9 for just a hot second, and then we'll be in 13 and 16. So the things that we're going to say, that, that's where you're going to find this in, in Scripture. Um, a, a long time ago in 1 Samuel, um, roughly about a thousand years before Mark is pinning this letter, or for the events that are happening that uh, call Mark to write these things down, Israel was begging for a, a king. Every nation around Israel, they had a king, uh, and so they were living under um, the rule and reign of what we would call a monarchy, right? The, kings, the king says it, the king speaks it, this is what they do. And so Israel at the time, they didn't have a king. Every other nation did, but their king was God. Yahweh was their king. He was their protector. He was their provider. Um, they lived under the rule and reign of what we would know as a theocracy. Others had a king. They had God. He was the one leading the show. He was in charge. He was in control. But the Israelites, they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like every nation around them. And so they said, and they cried out to God, give us a king. And God said, listen, if you keep begging for a king and you want to be like every other nation, it's not going to go well for you. I can see what you can't see. You keep crying and you keep begging and you want to be like every other nation. But it's not going to go well. And they said, I don't care. I don't care. Give us a king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, they get a king. His name's Saul. And he appears to be a blessing to the community. But I want you to hear how Scripture talks about Saul as the king. Um, go ahead and throw up 1 Samuel 9. Um, in 1 Samuel 9, we find out that Saul, he was a very handsome man. He had been on the cover of GQ. He, he, he would have been the guy that people wanted to endorse their products. He was very handsome. In fact, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And not only was he handsome, but he stood head and shoulders above everybody else in, in Israel. He stood out. This was the one. If anybody was going to be the king, they would assume that Saul was going to be the king. And sure enough, Saul became the, the king. There was nobody like him. There was nobody like him. And so the whole nation assumed that he had his act together. They assumed if God had chosen him, everything that was going on on the inside of the heart must be nice and tight and, and correct. But although things looked perfect on the outside, and it looked like he was going to be the perfect king, there were some fractures going on inside of his heart that maybe he knew about, maybe he didn't know about, but they get exposed pretty quickly. It wasn't too long after he became the king that he began, the wheels began to fall off of this Ferrari, Okay. In 1 Samuel 13, um, he's supposed to be getting ready to go to battle in with the Philistines. And Samuel, who's acting as the prophet and the priest at the time, is going to go before the battle and he is going to sacrifice. He tells, he tells him, go wait for X amount of time and I'm going to meet you there. Well, Saul, he's standing there ready to go in the battle with the Philistines. All of his army, they're already hiding in caves. They're freaked out about what's getting ready to happen. And Saul has an army who's not ready to fight. And he needs the sacrifice because if the sacri he gets a sacrifice, it's going to be what he feels like is a blessing. And he's going to be able to go into the, he's going to be able to go into the battle and he's going to win. And so Samuel's not showing up. And so Saul does some, something that he never should have done. He begins to act not only as the king, but he, get, he begins to act as the prophet and the priest also. So instead of waiting for Samuel to show up, he offers a sacrifice on the altar. And so you see his impatience begin to percolate up. You see his pride come out. He is afraid 
that he is going to lose his control. He's afraid that he's going to lose his influence. He's afraid that the army is going to start walking away, that they're never going to come out of the cave. And so instead of waiting, he took this role. And then we find out from Samuel a little bit later that the kingdom is going to be removed. He will no longer be the king, that there's going to be another one who's going to be anointed because of what's taken place. And so if you keep following and trucking along through 1 Samuel, you're going to find out that God sends Samuel to go find another king. He sends him to a man named Jesse. Y'all familiar with Jesse? Jesse has eight sons. And I don't know how this whole scene works out, but Samuel shows up and says, there's a king somewhere in this house. And, uh, and so uh, um, Jesse says, okay, I've got a few sons here. And he's like, he goes back to a room and he pulls one out and he says, here, this has got to be the king. And, and Samuel's like, no, this is not the king. And so he goes back to the house and the room and he pulls out another. And he does that seven times. He brings out seven sons and every one of those are rejected. This is not the one that's supposed to be the king. And so Samuel says, there's got to be another one. Yeah, there's another one. He's out in the field. It's my eighth son. He's, he's, he's the youngest. He's out tending sheep. He's protecting the flock. But he's the youngest. He's likely the smallest. He's the one that would be consider, considered the most insignificant of all these eight sons. He says, go get him. And they bring David in from the field. And God says, as soon as he sees him, that's the one. That's the one who's going to be the king. That's the one who's going to sit on the throne. And oh, by the way, he's going to sit on the throne forever. And that's going to get worked out through Jesus later on. And so the whole community would be saying, what is going on? This guy's small. He's not a warrior. He's not even the largest member of the family. He is the most insignificant. How can he be the king? The external posture and position can never be the sole indicator of the posture of our heart. Can I say that again? Our external posture and our position can never be the sole indicator of the posture of our heart. The outside has nothing to do with it. David's going to be described later as a man who's after God's own heart. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, like how on earth is that possible? Because you read David's story and like, David does some pretty jacked up stuff. Like this is a guy after God's own heart. What, what, what are we talking about here? But yet the same time that he is in the midst of sin and making a wreck of his life, somehow his heart is still bent towards God and he is contrite and he comes to the Lord and he receives his forgiveness. And so it wasn't his money. It wasn't his mistakes. Those aren't the things that defined him. It was his heart. That's how we know David. We know he messed up, but we don't know him as a man who just messed up. We know him as a man who was after God's own heart. It was the posture of his heart. And it's the same way with Saul here. Saul's not known because of his money. He's known because of the mistakes but he's not defined necessarily by the mistakes. We see him, and what he gets defined by is his heart. David is defined as a man who's after God's own heart. Saul gets defined as a man who wanted nothing to do with God. He would be willing to take the place of God in the society. I want you to listen to what God says about this in 1 Samuel 16, if you got your Bible there. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I want to jump back into Mark chapter 10 here real quick because for century after century, the Jewish people know exactly what was said here in 1 Samuel by God himself. 
They, they know that God looked at the heart while man was looking at the outside. But they also had these Ten Commandments. And they had 613 other laws that they needed to, to somewhat follow. And it was so easy for these men and women, children, to wake up every single morning and to say the Shema, to, to check that off their list, and then to start going through all the commandments and to go through all the laws that they're supposed to follow so that they might be a good girl or a good boy for the day. They were doing all the right things. But it's so easy for them to do all these right things, but at the same time, in the midst of their obedience, to have a heart that doesn't line up with their obedience. You know what I'm saying? They are obeying the law, but their heart is disconnected from God. It's so easy. And for generation after generation, this is what's happened. There is a generation after generation of God-fearing people. They were doing the right things. They were saying the right things. They looked perfect on the outside. They had, if we were to put it in our context, they had church life figured out to a T. We know what it's supposed to look like. We know what it's supposed to sound like. We know when we're supposed to show up. We know when we're supposed to stand up. We know when we're supposed to sit down. They had it all worked out, but their hearts were disconnected from God. And so now you have this man who's kneeling down before Jesus. He's in the right posture, and he asked the right question. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, right? You've been doing those. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your mom and dad. And uh, he didn't throw them all in there. He was just giving them out there for this guy. And this guy hears this. And as he's hearing this, he is mentally checking these things off. And he's thinking, yes, I've done every single one of those from my youth. I've been obeying the law. I've been doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I should be good to go. Jesus and I, like we can do this. We're, that's eternal life. And you can almost imagine as this guy's kneeling down, that he starts to get up as he's hearing this. He starts to dust his cloak off a little bit. Like, you know what? We got this. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. And he's about to roll out. And Jesus stops him. And I think maybe with a little chuckle. <laughs> you think you got it? Or, or maybe I think as verse 21 is going to tell us, he's got a little bit of concern uh, in his eyes. Because Mark says in verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. And I don't know what version you have and what you're reading from this morning, but in the Greek, that word there for look, it's an interesting word. Um, look there, it means that he looks straight through this guy. And as he's looking straight through him, he can see deep into the soul. He's gazing about everything this man has to offer. He's gazing at everything that this man has done. He's gazing at everything this man will ever do. There is nothing that is going on inside of him that he is not aware of. He is looking straight through him and he sees his soul. And he could see not only what he has done and what he hasn't done, he can see the intention of his heart. And he knew how this was going to play out. And so Jesus, he, he looks straight through all the garbage. He looks through the walls that we built up. He looks through the facades. He looks through the filters. And he looks through it all. And Mark says, in spite of everything that this man has done. He thinks he's got it all together. It's pretty prideful. In spite of all this, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. And I think it's a really good reminder for us, right? It's a perfect place for us to, to consider. God doesn't just see what we do. He sees what we don't do as well. But even more than that, he knows our hearts. He knows what's going on inside of us. He knows the idols of our hearts. He knows the thing that grips us so tightly that we don't want to let go of. You know, that, that thing like, Lord, you can have my whole life, but I'm going to hold on to this. 
And every time you get close to it, and every time somebody else gets close to it, I'm not going to let it go. I'm actually, I'm going to hide it because I don't want to give it up. I'm going to build a wall around it. I'm going to put a facade in front of it. He knows all of those things. That thing that you don't want to say, that thing you don't want to admit, that thing that you've been hiding because you're afraid if it comes out, the whole world is going to know and your whole world is going to get shook up and you're going to lose everything. He knows that thing. He knows the intentions of our hearts. And yet he looks at it and he sees it and he loves you anyway. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great news? That every one of us who are sitting in here who has sin in our life, we may be forgiven by God and we have eternity uh, promised and sitting in with him or the hope is waiting for us. Like we may, we've already trusted Christ, but yet there's still sin in our lives that, that he's working out. He tells Paul, um, or Paul tells us to, to work out our salvation. There are things in our life that we're still holding on to that we're not ready to let go of and he still loves us anyway. And he's loving us through that. That's a great news for us. Jesus looks at this man and he loves him, but he says, there's still something that you're holding on to. There's still something that you've got such a tight grip on and you won't let go of. And until you let go of that, you'll never know what it looks like to follow me. You'll never know. He says, go sow everything that you have. (laughs) Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. I want to clear this up because a lot of times when somebody teaches this, they start teaching that it's, it's a wrong thing to have money. It's a bad thing to have money. Jesus teaches about money a lot, but he cares more about our hearts than he does about the money, right? And so there are a lot of teachers who just, just poo-poo having money and just go sell everything. And no, like the Lord blesses people to use the gifts that he's given them to, to bless other people. So um, I want you to hear me say that this is not a... a um, a dogmatic approach from Jesus to say that you can't have money. He's not saying that. He's not saying that money, uh, he's, he's not saying that money here is even the issue. He's saying that for this man, that this man who's kneeling down before him, who's posturing his heart and making it look like he's following after Jesus. He says, for this man, this money is an issue. The core issue of this man's life, it's not that he doesn't want to follow Jesus. It's not that he hasn't done good things. He's done a lot of great things. It's not that he doesn't want to do good things in the future. The core issue for this man is that he has an idol in his heart that is wrapped around money, and Jesus is exposing that right now because he's been good, and he's made a lot of money along the way, and he assumes that the wealth that he has has been a blessing from God um, because of the obedience that he's had, and so he assumes that he and God are tight. But what's happening here? as there's this external position that's being exposed, his material possessions, they're, mat- they're not matching up with the interior of his heart. His money and his heart, they're not compatible. They're, they're not tracking in the same line with one another. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing that, but at the same time, with the love that he has in his eyes, he's inviting him to exchange that treasure, the treasure of this world for this immeasurable treasure of heaven. He said, I want to pour out the storehouses, the riches of heaven on you. But all you got to do is let go of what you're holding on to. He's like, I want to give it all to you. And I, and I dare to say in the 21st century, he's still inviting you and me to make that same exchange, to lay down the treasures of this world, to inherit the treasures of heaven, and that he might pour out the storehouses of heaven in your life. That he might give you Jesus. And in Jesus, that you will reign with him in eternity. And so the hope that you have in the things of this world, that you could put it aside and now exchange your hope for eternity. That's in him. He's inviting us into that exchange. And and I want you to notice what else happens here in verse 22. 
Um, there's a lot that Jesus has to say after verse 22, but I, I don't want us to miss this. And so if you have a pen, if you have your highlighter or something, um, let's grab this real quick in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Um, that word sorrowful there, it's the equivalent of what happened with Cain and Abel um, just outside the garden in Genesis. Y'all remember the story of Cain and Abel? Um, Eric mentioned it just a, a few minutes ago. Uh, Cain and Abel, remember, they're brothers. Um, Adam and Eve in the garden, sin came in. Uh, they had to leave the garden. God puts uh, um, some angels there so they can't get back in, so they don't live forever in the condition that they're in. It was a sign of his grace. They have children. They have Cain and Abel. And they are like, uh, there's something going on between them that we don't fully understand. And then they come to this opportunity where they get to offer offerings to God. And so Abel brings his offering, and it's the best of what he has, and he lays it down before God, and God is so pleased with that, and he accepts the offering. And, and then you have Cain who follows. Now, I don't know what he offered, and you and I, you don't know what he offered, but he brought something that would have looked like to you and me, if we were sitting there in the garden, that it would have looked like the best thing that ever the earth ever produced. And he gives it to the Lord. But yet, for some reason, God doesn't accept that offering. Why doesn't he accept it? It's not because it doesn't look good. It's because the condition of, of his heart. He is just bringing something because that's what you're supposed to do. My brother brought something, so I guess I'm supposed to bring something, so I bring it and I lay it down, and the Lord doesn't accept it. He actually, he rejects it. And the word that we get here is that uh, Scripture says that he walks away saddened or walks away shocked or in dismay. It's the Hebrew equivalent of what's happening in Mark chapter 10. It's the same thing. The rich man's invited to lay down the treasure of this world and to receive the storehouses of heaven and to receive a treasure that is immeasurable. And yet, he says, now I'm good. I'm good. I'll hang on to the treasures of this world. And he walks away. And just like Cain, he's sad. He's in dismay. He is shocked. And he's angry that the Lord would even ask him to do something like that. They would ask him to lay down his treasure because it was his, it was his idol, it was his security. Guys, the outside is rarely the best indicator of what's going on on the inside. Didn't work for Cain. It's not working for this guy here. Jesus knows the heart. I want to say this. If we live for now, you'll get now. If you live for everything that this world has to offer and you work hard enough and you put your head down and you follow the grind, you'll get everything that this world has to offer. You'll get it. And you might even have a comfortable life in the middle of it. But at the end of the line, the exchange would have been better. Because if we live with the kingdom or live for the kingdom of God with the certainty that we're going to get everything that the king has to offer and everything that the kingdom has to offer, Guys, he wants to pour that out. He says, you'll get it. If you live for the kingdom, you're going to get the kingdom. And the disciples are looking at this, and they rightly said, if this man can't be saved, then who can? If this guy can't do it, then who can? He's got money. He's got his life all put together. Like, they're measuring themselves up against this guy and saying, how do we even measure up if he can't do it? Look at verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and we followed you. You know what Peter's doing right here? He's beginning to freak out. You know why he's freaking out? Because he sees this man who has money and he's got his life put together and he's kneeling down before Jesus and Jesus says no to this guy. Like this is not what it's supposed to look like. And they're like, I don't compare to that. They're comparing themselves to his trophy wall. They're comparing themselves to his Instagram. They're comparing themselves to the wealth that he has. It's like, I'm just a fisherman, man. Like, I, I can't do what he's doing. And so if he's not accepted, how on earth am I going to be accepted? And he's having this holy freak out right now with Jesus. <laughs> and Peter says, mine doesn't look like this, guys. And he says, we left everything to follow you. You ever feel like that in your life? Man, like you just start to look at your life and you're like, man, I hit pothole and pothole and I hit another pothole. And you look back and you say, man, I left everything to follow you, Jesus. And this is what I have? This is what I got to look forward to? I left everything. He's saying, I left everything to follow you. And he's freaking out and Jesus says, yes, that's it. No one who leaves behind everything to follow me is going to regret it. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I went through this and I went through, no one who leaves behind everything for me is going to regret what they gave up. No, you don't understand. I went, no one who leaves behind everything for me is going to regret what they gave up. Jesus said in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and then the age to come, eternal life. This is nobody who's willing to walk away from what they have in this world is going to lose hope for eternity. So you're going to get everything. And the age to come, eternal life. But many who will be first will be last and the last first. You guys know what Jesus is saying here? He's going, he's looking back. Like this, what Mark is doing is he's grabbing what we talked about last week and he's adding it to this week. And he's saying, you can come to me with all your money. You can come to me with all your gifts and, and come to me and your heart can be wretched. Or you can come to me like one of those children that we talked about last week who comes to me open-handed, open-armed, empty-handed and says, I've got nothing to offer you, but you have everything to give to me. It, it, it's the person who comes to me, he says, like a child. It's the one who comes to me with open arms, empty hands. He says, this is the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. You bring me nothing, nothing. Even everything that you bring to me, at the end of the day, it's nothing because he gives it to us. He says, you bring me nothing and I give you everything. Money can't buy happiness. Money certainly can't buy love. Money can't buy the kingdom. Money can't buy eternal life. This man wanted to buy eternal life. And a lot of us live like we, we can buy or earn eternal life. And Jesus says, you can't. And so he says, then what do we do? If he can't, then what do I do? And all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers keep pointing us back to the cross. They keep pointing us back to Jesus. They keep saying, this is the only way. You can't earn it. You can't do it. It's by the blood of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus alone that sets you free. That's it. And so we look at what Paul says in Ephesians. Because of what Jesus has done, 
that for, it's for grace you've been saved through faith. Do you know what he doesn't say there? He doesn't say it's by money you've been saved. He doesn't say it's by your hard work that you've been saved. It doesn't say that it's because of everything you brought and because your life looked perfect that you were saved. He said it is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. By grace alone. So what I want to do is I, I want to invite you into the exchange that Jesus offered this rich man. I want to invite you to lay it all down. To lay it all down, whatever it is, that thing that you're holding on to, that life that you've been waiting for, that life that you've been living, and the thing that says, man, I just want to go for that, or I can't come because of this. I want you to lay it down and to make the exchange, your life for my life, my nothing for your everything. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we have nothing to offer you. Not one thing. <laughs> All we can say is we want you and you do everything else. And so, Jesus, we say we want you. Jesus, we say we, we need you. Jesus, uh, we lay down everything before you. And so if there are, are men and women in the room right now or children in the room, teenagers who have never trusted you, Jesus, I pray that they would look at the cross right now and say, you gave me everything. You took my sin took it to the cross. You laid down your life. And if I want eternal life, I trust that. And so I pray for men and women and children in the room right now. If they've never trusted you, if they never accepted the sacrifice that you gave through Jesus, that today would be the day that they would make the exchange their life for your life, God. Your life for ours. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to enter into communion right now. Uh, it just, it, it's, it's really cool how these things dovetail, right? Jesus said, it's my life for yours. He went to the cross, was sitting at a table with his disciples one night, and as they were sitting there, he was, he was pointing them to what he was getting ready to do. He said, this is what the exchange is going to look like. I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm, and I'm going to give it to you if you would take it. And so he sat with the disciples and he talked about the bread and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, guys, I want you to see this. I know it's hard for you to imagine, but this is my body that's going to be broken for you. We see it in hindsight. They were seeing it in real time. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? But he's giving them a picture of something to remember, a, 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 a current moment of a heavenly reality. And this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And whenever you sit around the table and you eat it and you celebrate this meal, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the life that I lived. And I want you to remember the death that I died on a cross. And then a little later at the same uh, meal, he takes the cup that is full of wine. Um, there was a cup that they were used to. It was a traditional cup. And he takes it and, and, and he lifts it up and, and he says, guys, I, I, I know you know what this cup means. But I want to redefine it for you. And he says, this, this cup is now the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. I have done something new. I am ushering in forgiveness for you. I'm ushering in grace for you. And every time that you drink this cup, I want you to remember that new covenant. I want you to remember what I did for you. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to eat this again 
I'm not going to drink this again until we are sitting around the table as brothers and sisters in my name, in Christ, when we're sitting around the table and we're celebrating with the saints what Jesus has done and we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's going to be fantastic. He says, this is to be a picture of that heavenly reality. So don't forget it. And so as you take some bread and communion this morning and as you drink some juice, that's what we're doing. We're remembering something that happened on a cross 2,000 years ago that gives us hope forever. And so I want to pray for this and um, the band's going to, the worship team's band, the worship team, they're going to they're gonna play uh, a song. There's gluten-free um, uh, bread up here if you're gluten-free. Uh, and uh, uh, just come at your leisure. But I just kind of do business with the Lord before you come up as an individual, as a family, and uh, let him uh, just kind of purge your heart a little bit. Father, thanks for your body that you offer through Jesus on the cross. It's just hard to imagine and to think about that day but yet it's so real and it's, it's life-giving for us. So thank you for Jesus' body. Thank you for his blood that washes us clean. That we put on and are justified through. And um, thank you for the blood that was poured and the scene and the gruesomeness of that, God. Because that means that we would never have to go through that as an individual. Thanks for taking our place. And we look forward to the day when we see your face and we do this with you in heaven around your table. And we lift our cups. And we eat the bread with brothers and sisters from years gone by. And saints who have fought the good fight. So would you bless our communion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.